Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. One day when my son was three, we were going to a park near our house in Seattle where we occasionally went for him to play. It was a pretty typical afternoon for Karen Cook and her young son, playing on the swing set, going down the slide, just having fun together. But then... We were walking around and heading to one section of the park that had more trees. It was a little bit darker. And I said to my son, "Um, I think we need to turn around and go home now. And he said, why? And I said, well, I think there's a stranger over there. Karen had taught her son to be wary of strangers, but she had never described to him exactly what a stranger looks like. We turned around and started walking away, and he said, wait, Mom, can I just see the stranger? I want to see what a stranger is. And so we stopped so that he could see that it was a person. I realized at the time that he had no clue what a stranger was, and it could have been an alien as far as he was concerned. That moment at the park made Karen rethink why she trusts certain people and not others. Why did she assume that stranger was a threat? What about them made her distrustful? And what lessons was she teaching her son? Many of us are taught from an early age not to trust strangers. You've heard of it. Stranger danger. But living in our society means that we have to trust strangers every day. We trust strangers not to swerve and hit us when we walk down the street. We trust airplane pilots to fly us safely. We trust doctors not to hurt us when they provide care. But for some of us, our trust in each other, in institutions, even in medicine, has been tested during the COVID-19 pandemic. The consequences of this mistrust can have profound effects on our bodies, our brains, but also our hearts and our minds, for better and for worse. So today, we're going to explore something that I've been thinking about a lot trust. We explore the reasons why we trust. How can we build it? And how can we restore it when it's been lost? I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, and this is Chasing Life. Sadly, many of us know what it feels like to trust someone just to have that trust then broken. I had my favorite sushi restaurant that I knew made about two to three rolls that I really enjoyed, and I would get these rolls maybe once a week. But then, I go on vacation and I come back, order my normal sushi rolls, only to find that the rolls not only look different, but also tasted completely different. So this obviously completely broke my trust in this restaurant. I was very upset, and I've actually not been there since. I had a barber named Josh. He was so good that I could just sit down in the chair without telling him what he had to do. And I was getting my first haircut before I went to the first day of high school. And I was like, Josh, don't cut my hair too low. Guess what he did? He cut it so low that it was like 
a buzz cut, basically, and I had to go to high school like that, and it was super embarrassing. I just felt so betrayed by him. But a barber is somebody who you have to have complete trust in, and it was so hard to trust him after that day. Last year, in the height of the pandemic, it was a work romance gone wrong, and um, unfortunately, this person had a facade that they were displaying to me and um, instead of their true self and mirroring a lot of the qualities that I loved and, um, you know, fell head over heels, but it was just all a big lie. So it was my first week of college and I was living in an all-girls dorm and some of the girls on the floor, uh, we all decided to go to a club. And to me, it seemed like we were all going together, so we were all going to come home together. That didn't happen. A couple of the girls definitely left the club without me, didn't check to see where I was, if I was okay. Um, I did make it home safely, but from then on, I was like, those people are not my friends. I always say it's rare that we trust any particular person about everything. So I often say, I trust my husband with the kids, but not the money. Remember Karen Cook from the park? Well, she's also a professor of sociology at Stanford University and an expert on trust. A lot of theorists argue that trust is moral. Trust is something we should do or we should engage in. But we know that to be false because it's not good all the time to trust. There are many settings in which it would lead to harm if you trusted someone. So it might be moral to be trustworthy as a person, but not necessarily to go around trusting everyone. Well, you know, I don't know if you saw this, but I think every year, maybe every few years, there's a most trusted sort of list in America. And yes. actually one year I was on the list, which kind of surprised me in a way, but I remember the person who was at the top of the list was Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks was the most trusted person in America. Yeah, I'm not sure what people uh, mean when they say most trusted. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, how do you define trust in, in your professional opinion? It's often defined sort of abstractly as a willingness to be vulnerable, make yourself vulnerable to another or to an institution. Or um, We treat it more as a characteristic of a relationship. So I trust you to the extent that I think that you... Um, I'm going to say care about me, but take what is important to me or um, what is in my interest to heart. So it's called an encapsulated interest view of trust, but it just, it focuses in on the relationship between two individuals or parties. Does that mean that fundamentally you have to know somebody in order to trust them, or could you trust somebody you don't really know? People argue that you could trust a stranger initially. You decide whether or not that person might be trustworthy and you take a risk. Then you collect information and begin to trust or not, depending on whether they are cooperative or trustworthy based on the things you find out about them. So you could trust a stranger. It's not clear what the basis for that is. It may just be that you're optimistic about human nature and you're willing to at least initially trust a stranger about a very small thing. Okay, let's say you're meeting somebody for the first time. You know, you're looking for signs that, you know, the person is someone that can be trusted. How do you decide who is trustworthy? It partly depends on who's in the room and who's not in the room. 
So if who's in the room are people like you, you're probably going to be more willing to take, uh, to just assume that they're trustworthy. I've said before, if I'm at an airport and I would need to leave my two-year-old for some reason with someone, I would pick another woman who had children or who I could assume was another mother or a father even who might, who, who I think might have some competence in that domain. So two factors that we care about usually are competency and motivation. Can I assess what your motivation is? Would you take care of my child like you would your own, that kind of assessment. And those judgments are hard to make. So we usually make them on past experience of our own or with what's called third-party trust, your reputation or some somebody I know knows you and trusts you. Trust really starts in the brain. The prevailing theory is that trust is generated by the hormone oxytocin. Oxytocin promotes social behavior, including trust empathy, and a desire to connect, which humans need to survive. It is released by everyday activities, things like getting a hug or a massage, dancing, falling in love, breastfeeding, and yes, even being trusted. That's right. Trust leads to more oxytocin, which leads to more trust in both people involved, the person who trusts and the other person they're trusting. Does that all make sense? When someone violates our trust, when we are betrayed, it can lead to significant feelings of animosity and suspicion. And if that betrayal feels especially deep and personal, it can lead to anxiety, depression, fear, even post-traumatic stress. And of course, there's also mistrust. But Professor Cook says that mistrust can actually be helpful in some situations. Essentially, you need to be aware of the circumstances you're in and the people you're around. So you need to be um, cognitively aware enough to figure out whether this situation allows for trust or not. And I think that's important. Think about your own teenage daughters. (laughs) I used to say to my son, I will trust you until you prove that you're not trustworthy. (laughs) And then the rules will change about whether you can stay out late or whatever. I feel like you've been inside my house because we're having these exact (laughs) conversations. I consider myself a fairly trusting person, but I do live by the adage, trust but verify. I think that's how a lot of maybe scientists and others maybe live their lives. But why is it so hard for some people to trust? I think it really depends on who they are and what they've experienced. I think there's some people, and you may have seen them as a doctor, who have had such a negative set of experiences with relationships, even parents or relatives, that it's very hard for them to trust again. So I think that would lead somebody to have a very hard time placing trust in others, especially if they appear to be like the person who violated their trust. So I don't find it surprising that some people have a hard time trusting How much of a role do you think the internet plays in who we trust and mistrust? I think it's uh, a big player because I think it's a source of a lot of misinformation. And then as we know, people live in these little echo chambers. I think creating a world around you in which you only hear people like you speaking. And I think people don't fully understand science. The fact that it's self-correcting over time. The fact that we may get it wrong, but we'll get it right the next time. And maybe 
after time after that, we'll go back to saying chocolate is good for you or coffee is good for you or red wine is good for you. You know, when it um, comes to the Internet and just technology in general, you know, it's interesting because through this pandemic, I have had coworkers that I've actually never met. These are my colleagues. And, you know, we're very dependent on one another. Can we trust somebody that we've just met online? I mean, and, and then and can you even extend that? Because relationships, romantic relationships, and these things start online. Does that work? Sure. I think it depends on the amount of information you have. I know a number of liaisons that have formed this way. Um, they eventually meet personally and have coffee or lunch or something and then go from there. But um, I do think you can learn a lot about somebody just by listening to them and talking to them. I've never met you in person, though I have seen you on TV. Uh, so I know a lot about you just as a person from those appearances. So I would start off trusting you, given the orientation you take to the news and to information and to people that you communicate very clearly. Well, I appreciate that. I think the the sort of moral through line is we should trust each other more, right? I mean, we're not cavemen anymore. It feels like early in our evolution as humans, we needed to be suspicious and skeptical of things because everyone was just trying to survive. But at a point when you end up in a civilized society that, you know, does have rules, not perfect ones and not everyone follows them, but does have rules that you're enabled and empowered to more freely trust. Fair? Is that a fair way of looking at it? It's fair. I would say uh, it's important to be trustworthy in those settings, and that will generate trust in the society. Um, Because cultures vary a lot, and economies vary, and countries vary in the extent to which there are things like the rule of law and where people who violate trust are held accountable. That varies a lot cross-culturally. So the highest trust, generalized trust countries in the world are the Scandinavian countries. And the lowest are scattered around, but typically in the Southern Hemisphere. You mentioned the Scandinavian countries having some of the um, highest trust scores. And when I think of you know countries like Denmark or Norway, I think of countries that are often wealthy, that have uh, significant social programs like healthcare and literacy and, and things like that. They take joy in, in the fact that people are treated more equally there in terms of th- those types of social programs. Is that why you think they're, they're more trusted? Yes, those factors matter. So egalitarianism, um, homogeneity in the population, which is being challenged to some extent. So you mentioned inequality. The government is a strong social welfare program, and the welfare programs are linked to egalitarianism in the society. That is, they, they help pick people up who have fallen below a particular floor. So those factors do matter. And inequality which is rising in the U.S., is one of the things we have to worry a bit about because inequality, extreme inequality, is linked to increasing distrust. Part of the reason we wanted to talk about this today is because there is a lot of mistrust in our country right now. In the last year and a half during this pandemic, we've seen people refusing vaccines. We've seen them dismissing public health recommendations, which I think could stem from a distrust of the government and the medical establishment. In the 20 years or so that I've been a journalist, I've never seen anything quite like this, at least not this bad. And it worries me. Scientists are increasingly seen as too arrogant, 
too didactic, less likely to be trusted. The evidence and the data and the studies to support the recommendations hardly matter if there's not enough trust. It all has to start with trust. So what can be done to fix this problem? So after the break, we're going to look at trust between doctors and patients and see if it can help fix our broken healthcare system. And then we're also going to talk more to Professor Cook and get some very specific tips for fostering trust and even rebuilding it if it's been lost. And now back to Chasing Life. You know, as a doctor, when I think about trust, I think first about my relationships with patients. Will they trust my diagnosis? Do I trust that they're telling me the truth about their symptoms? Are they going to follow through with the treatment I recommend? It's something that we doctors think about and talk about all the time. So I decided to chat with my friend and fellow physician, Dr. Shanta Nunandi. Trust is foundational to medicine. You know, one of my mentors told me that medicine moves at the speed of trust, right? Like we have all these innovations, all these new technologies, these new medicines. But if people don't trust us and if people don't trust those things, those things aren't going to go anywhere. Dr. Nundi is a primary care physician in the greater Washington, D.C. area. He's also the chief medical officer for Accolade, a company that helps people navigate the healthcare system. Earlier this year, Dr. Nundi wrote a book called Care After COVID, what the pandemic revealed is broken in healthcare and how to reinvent it. He says that trust is really at the heart of the problem. If I diagnose you with high blood pressure and I prescribe a medication that's going to help you lower your blood pressure, if you don't trust me, if you don't trust the diagnosis I made and you don't trust that medicine, guess what you're going to do? You're going to walk out the door, you're going to put that prescription in the garbage and you're going to go about your life. And Right there, that's someone whose blood pressure is not controlled. That's years from now, that person's going to have a stroke or a heart attack and not know it, and you're going to have all the downstream health implications and costs. This has been an ongoing issue. But now I can tell you that mistrust has become one of the biggest dangers facing public health today in the United States. Most of the mistrust we have is actually earned. Medicine has a long history of mistreating large portions of the population. You know, going back to the experiments that we've run on certain populations or even simple things like how quickly it takes a doctor to cut somebody off when they start talking to them about what's bringing them into the, to the doctor today or this idea of a surprise bill. These are all examples of where we've earned that mistrust. And I think rather than talking about trust, I start to talk about trustworthiness. Mistrust of the healthcare system has led some Americans to hold off getting the COVID-19 vaccine that has endangered countless lives and it's hindered our efforts to fight this virus. So I guess the real question now is, can that trust be rebuilt? I think that the pandemic creates a catalytic moment for us to rebuild relationships and care, right? Um, I think that if you look at some of the things like the New Yorkers clapping for healthcare professionals, like they did every night for a while, I think we've learned to trust, uh, you know, care delivered virtually or care delivered outside of our homes in a church or uh, in a football stadium for our vaccinations. I think all of those things create this tremendous opportunity. We have to meet people where they are, how they want to be met. To me, that's the foundation of the health system we need to build, one that 
is trustworthy and earns back the trust uh, of our patients of all types. You know, medicine is such a hands-on profession. I mean, that's how we were trained, literally laying on hands of the patient. And I think that is part of the building of trust. I saw the doctor, you know, I, I, I saw the nurse, I, I had that interaction with them. Do you risk diminishing it to some extent if it starts to become distributed? Healthcare starts to become distributed into, you know, pharmacies, uh, grocery stores, whatever it may be. It's done over an app versus in person. It feels more decentralized. What's the balance there? Do you risk potentially losing some of that trust? You know, you and I have never met in person, but I think we have a good relationship. And so I think more important in my mind than the in-person versus virtual is the how. It's how we're sustaining the relationship. You know, most doctors think of technology, particularly the electronic health record, as getting in the way of our relationships. But there's a lot of really simple technologies like messaging that I think could help strengthen relationships. Is there, for people who are not as technologically savvy or still have some distrust of not actually just going to the doctor, seeing the doctor in person, how do they know which of these sites or, or apps are legit? Is there some concern that some of them may be predatory or, or taking advantage of, of lax regulation? Yeah, it's a huge challenge, right? Like you can't just go with all the misinformation. You can't just Google it. You can't just go to an app. And there is no silver bullet. I, I can't tell you one place to go to find where are all the good you know, services. I'm sure there's some lists online, but one of the things that I encourage people to do is make it a topic of conversation. I would encourage people to talk to friends and family, talk to doctors about what tools they use. You know, we, we often talk about our cars or we talk about, you know, what we're doing last weekend, but we don't really talk about health. And I think it's a huge opportunity for us to start to do that, to learn from each other and see what people that we trust, trust. Professor Karen Cook has actually done research on the role of trust in doctor-patient relations. So I decided to get her thoughts on the topic as well. The first time I see a physician, I don't know whether I'm going to trust him or not, I'm going to, or her. I'm going to wait and see how the interaction goes. Right. How quickly could you say that, yes, I trust this person? Is that, is that something that could happen rapidly? Take the physician-patient example that you gave. Yeah, their signals could be very early on in the relationship. Some of our uh, patients talked about that person was caring. It depends on how they treat you, how they look at you, how they whether they listen to you, whether they would make physical contact with you and not stand at the foot of my bed, as one patient said, with my hands in my pocket. <laughs> Certainly, I would feel that way if I were trying to find a pediatrician for my child. I would want the most competent person and someone who would really care about this little three-year-old. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting because people will ask me all the time, even about surgeons in my own hospital, hey, you know, how's this person, you, you know, and we we don't really ever operate with each other. You know who knows? Always, if you want to ask. The, the nurses. nurses yeah. The nurses and the residents and the residents because the residents will rotate through with all the docs. If you really want to know in terms of, you know, trying to trust somebody, ask the nurses and the residents for sure. Yeah. You talked about um, why patients may or may not trust physicians, the competency, the attentiveness, um, feeling like they're being listened to. What about the other way? Uh, physicians trust which patients? What kind of characteristics? They tend to have lower trust in their patients when there's low compliance. 
They don't do what they're asked to do, don't follow up and get tests, etc. Lack of honesty or suspicion that the patients are primarily seeking drugs or seeking uh, support for a, a disability claim that wouldn't be accurate. As we said before, trust isn't just for doctors and patients. It's the foundation for all of our relationships. So what can we do in our everyday lives to help foster trust? I think by being trustworthy. So there's a model of trustworthiness that said that there are three factors, ability, benevolence, and integrity. So if you think about those three things, you have the relevant ability for whatever the situation is. Benevolence, you can communicate. And integrity, I think, is a key part that we don't often talk about enough. So I think those are important. So it's really more about being trustworthy just off the bat. And then people can trust you. In most cases, it's important to trust people until proven otherwise and to let them know you trust them. I do this with staff often. I'm willing to take the first step and just give an assignment and say, come to me if you need help. But communicating that you trust them often makes them more committed to you and to the task and more excited about engaging in it. Yeah, I think I think that's that's right. If I've lost trust in somebody, somebody don't, has eroded their trust for me, is there a way that I can rebuild that? I think depending on the nature of the trust violation, it may take quite a while. <laughs> There's an interesting small study we did where there was a trust breach early in the in the experiment or later in the experiment. And if it happened early, trust didn't recover very much. Uh, it took a while for it to recover. It was like they took that early betrayal as a real clear signal of lack of trustworthiness. But if it happened later in the trials, it recovered a little better. It's almost as if, well, this person has been pretty trustworthy up until now, that you're a bit more willing to think about alternative explanations than the person is just untrustworthy completely. When trust has been betrayed, the key to moving forward is forgiveness and reconciliation. You need to rebuild that relationship. And when it comes to healing the rifts of mistrust in this country, Professor Cook recommends showing a little kindness. I think it's very important for us to begin talking across divides and trying to demonstrate that we care about one another independent of our ideologies and get out of linking ideologies to things about health. As a journalist, as a doctor, but also as a husband and a father, I've come to realize more than ever just how important trust is. Nothing else works without it. It's what makes the world go round. And I hope as a listener, you trust me too. On last week's episode, we talked about anger, and I asked you to share your experience putting our tips into action in your day-to-day lives. We got some incredible responses that I wanted to share with you. Hi, Sanjay. My name is Russell, and uh, I really appreciate your podcast. I learn a lot every episode. The one on anger was especially useful for me. Since around the pandemic started, I've been doing therapy online. And one of the useful tools that I've learned that's worked for me coping with my anger is meditation and increasing my mindfulness. I used to think meditation was uh, kind of phony, 
but I found uh, just 15 minutes a day at the end of the day, just closing my eyes and focusing on my breathing, I become more in tune with myself and have started to see patterns emerging when I get angry. Uh, my breath shortens, muscle tightens, etc. And now that I see and know these cues, I try to walk away, take a moment when I feel them. I find that um, going outside, looking at the trees, the clouds, squirrels, anything in nature is very calming when you're really angry and you need time to think and get away from that moment that's causing uh, or triggering that anger. I am a school-based social worker who provides counseling to children. I found the podcast that talked about anger to resonate with my own frustrations, um, even though I often try to channel my anger into more constructive means and build an understanding, this year really got to me personally and became more active in making changes at a local political level. I try to post some of the activities that help my kids deal with this topic of control and anger on social media to help out adults who are raising kids at home during the pandemic. Thank you so much to everyone who called in and emailed. I really want to keep this conversation going. That is how I think of this podcast, a conversation, a chance to speak directly to listeners like you. And here's another request. We're working on an upcoming episode about coping mechanisms and breaking bad habits. And I want to hear your thoughts on the topic. What is a bad habit maybe you picked up during the pandemic and that you'd like to break now? Please record your thoughts as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. Or you can give us a call at 470-396-0832 and leave a message. We might even include your story on an upcoming episode of the podcast. I hope you get a chance to also pick up my new book. It comes out today. It's called World War C, The Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic and How to Best Prepare for the Next One, Including Your Own personal health. How do you make yourself as pandemic-proof as possible? We'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. Our podcast is produced by Rachel Cohn, Jordan Gasparre, Audrey Horwitz, Paige Sutherland, and Grace Walker. Our production assistant is Allison Park, our medical writer, Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer, and special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seeley of CNN Health, as well as Ashley Lusk, Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.